You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Toonstar, an animation tech startup that produces snackable, interactive content for mobile audiences. To learn more, visit Toonstar.com or download the Toonstar app. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Jen Sargent, COO of Wondery, the incredible podcast company behind hits like Dr. Death, Gladiator, and Business Wars. Jen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, excited we get to do this. Let's start off by talking about how you found your way into the digital media industry. I found my way into digital media a little bit after college, not to date myself, but the internet was just blowing up at that time about 20 years ago. And everyone I knew who had studied engineering ended up going into some form of the internet, except for me. I took a path to Wall Street and tried out the business side of things. And after about two years of a grueling experience being an analyst in mergers and acquisitions, I started thinking, gosh, I, I really am curious about this thing called the web and, and what's my path into it. And that coincided with an opportunity that came up to work at an ad software company called DoubleClick. And at the time, they were the number one digital ad server. In fact, they still are, but they've been since acquired by Google. But an opportunity came up to work with them, and I jumped at it and uh, kind of never looked back. Very cool. Yeah. So how was it going from one side of the table, right, working in investment banking and VC to mm -hmm. becoming an operator? It's totally different, and I loved it. it. You know, having worked in investment banking as my first job out of college, I didn't really make that connection that I wanted to be an operator over being an advisor. I just knew I, I wanted to do something different than investment banking and was intrigued by the Internet. And having worked at DoubleClick for a few years, I then had an opportunity to work in venture capital. And it was really that experience, having entrepreneurs pitch to me all day, that I realized, wait, I'm kind of jealous of the people on the other side of the table. I wish I was one of them, you know, living my dream versus just writing the checks and, and, and advising. And so it was that experience in VC that really prompted me to say, hey, wait, I want to be an operator. I think I always want to be an operator. How do I get back to operating? And that got me back that direction. And then I, I haven't looked back since. That's great. Yeah. What were some of the takeaways that you learned, you know, during your time at Bertelsmann on the VC side? Uh, what are some of the mistakes that you maybe see early stage entrepreneurs make? And what are some of the lessons that you learned? Well, it wasn't so much anything about Bertelsmann or VC in general, but given the time frame that I was there, it was during a rocky time of the economy. So the internet bubble had burst in the US and that had kind of followed me over to Germany. So it was a time when VCs were looking inward at their portfolios, not making as many outward investments and really having to protect their portfolio and the funds they had raised. So coming to market with just more, more heavy handed terms and it gave me a chance to see really the ugly side of VC and, and what can happen when startups run out of money, when CEOs don't perform, you know, the tricks of the trade in terms of how you stage a negotiation and time and negotiation to really get the best deal for the venture capital firm. So it was things like that that helped me learn a lot of lessons kind of on someone else's dime around fundraising. So then when it was my turn to fundraise, I definitely was looking out for all the you know, tricks and warning signs that entrepreneurs usually don't know about ahead of time. 
Yeah, makes the process a little bit easier, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you took that entrepreneurial leap in late 2008 yes. uh, with the launch of HitFix, right? Yes. So that was a Perfect pop culture focus. Recession, kind of... great recession, you know, bottom of the economy. <laughs> Lucky I, you, huh? I could not have timed it worse <laughs> in terms of, uh, yeah, the state of the economy. Sure. So what inspired you to launch the business? Well, having that Germany experience and, and, and kind of finding that aha of, hey, I want to go be an operator, it also made me say, I don't want to just be an operator. I want to, I want to start my own business. And I'm someone who had always had ideas along the way, but just never the perfect storm or, or stars coming together of, you know, the right idea with the right circumstance and, and personally being ready to kind of take that leap. And that's what really ended up coming together for me in 2008, where I had an idea that I was very passionate about. I was at a stage of my life where I felt like I could take a risk. I had a business partner that I, I trusted and, and liked and, and wanted to go you know, do the business with. How did you meet your business partner? I met my business partner at Variety, which was my, my job prior to starting HitFix. So I was the digital marketing lead for rebusiness information. I was based in New York, but working heavily with Variety, one of the portfolio companies. And in working with Variety, I had uncovered some gaps in the market that Variety, I thought, could take advantage of and the Variety wanted to take advantage of. But due to some circumstances outside of my control, Reed had other plans for the company. They were actually in the process of divesting the U.S. division. And as a result, when my business plan and ideas got presented, everyone thought it was a good idea, but they said, hey, you know, we're going to stick to our knittings, stay the course on the business we're in because confidentially we're selling the business. Mm. And so at that point, one of the lessons I learned in business school was, you know, own your IP, own your ideas. So I thought, gosh, I'd really like to keep working on this idea. Let me ask for permission, you know, just to make sure, get a carve out just in case so I can keep working on this. And that's what I did. And it was so far from anything that Reed wanted to do that they said, sure, Jen, go ahead. You wow, no strings attached, huh? No strings attached because they really nice. truly were going a different direction. That's great. Okay, good. And so that made me feel good that, you know, there wasn't going to be any conflict. And I kept, you know, nights and weekends continuing to work on it. And my business partner did too. And then we got to a point where like, hey, we're ready to go do this. And market conditions were really not a factor. It was more personal timing of when we were ready to do it. And I was lucky that... I got some financial commitments from investors prior to the market drop in September of 2008 and prior to Lehman going bankrupt. And then right around then, I got a term sheet from an angel group that I somehow held on to and didn't let go. And, and it all kind of came together by January of 2009. And we we launched. Good for you. I love it. Well, there's so many things about your story that are that are helpful and I want to kind of point out for people. And I kind of share a similar uh, experience when I talk to aspiring entrepreneurs or students or do some advising of early stage companies. And people ask me, you know, how do you know, right? How do you know when it's the right time to launch a business? And some people, maybe entrepreneurship's in their blood and they always have a lot of ideas. Uh, seems like that's maybe analogous to your story. But there's, a, there's something about how you need to be so struck by an idea. And I tell people, you try and kill it, right? You, you challenge it every way you can, but it just keeps coming up and coming up. And when you have that right confluence of timing personally and for the market and team and opportunity, that's when you jump on something. And it seems like that kind of resonates with your story too. It definitely does. Although I'd say like many 
of the big milestones in life, there's never a perfect time. There's never a good time. There's never a perfect time to have a baby, to get married, to move cross country, to start a business. You're not going to get all of your ducks in a row, but you can get some of your ducks in a row. And for me, that was enough financial independence that I could not have a salary for a few months and not have to live in a cardboard box. Yeah. And that, that part was said. It was enough comfort in my own abilities and confidence in my own abilities that I thought I could do it. You know, I didn't doubt myself. I thought, no, I can do this. I'm, I'm going to try it. It might not succeed, but I can do this. I can try it. And for me, it was also just an idea I believed in. So to your point before, it was something that just kept coming up and set, kept coming to the forefront where it's like, gosh, if I don't do this, I'm going to regret not trying. Yeah, good yeah. for you. Yeah. And I love the fact that you were working on it in nights and weekends because so much of kind of those early days is it's, it's not just uh, something that happens overnight, right? It's something no. that you need to incubate the idea and test and iterate and learn. And then when you're ready to go all in, a lot of people think entrepreneurs are these crazy, wild, risk-taking people. I find oftentimes the most successful entrepreneurs are uh, managing their risk very carefully, right? They're protecting the downside. They're looking for financial independence so that they can take a concentrated risk and put, you know, push their chips in on one idea, but they're kind of hedging their bets in other areas. That's exactly right. And what I didn't know at the time, but what I've learned since, and I'm glad I did this, is it takes longer than you think to get these kind of things off the ground. And if you just completely cut bait from all other projects and jobs, cut off your income from all those sources and go all in on, on an idea that's still half-baked, it's going to take a while to get it to where you need to get it to. So it's not uncommon to do double duty for quite some time before you get an idea where you need it to be. What was the hardest part about being a first-time founder? Oh, gosh. One of the things that I was not great at that I got better at was listening to my gut. So I knew that I was doing these things for the first time. So for almost everything, I sought outside counsel from friends, from business advisors, from my board. And that was all well and good. And I'm glad I sought that out. But at some point, you know, I had enough experience, life experience and business experience to say, you know, in most circumstances, I, I did know the answer and I didn't always listen to my gut. I, I, I would defer to outside advice. And when I did that, sometimes the advice wasn't as good as my gut feeling. So I got more comfortable over time listening to my gut, but but that was something that I had to, to learn as a first time entrepreneur. Yeah, sure. ultimately you're closest to the daily issues, right? Yes. And these people are betting on you, so right. they trust your intuition, they trust that you have a command of the facts and can make the right call. Yes, yeah. exactly. Good. So HitFix was eventually acquired by Uprox Media Group, and you went on to serve as president of Uprox for two years after the acquisition. What changed post-acquisition? Uh, post a lot and a little um, in the sense that I thought as an entrepreneur, oh, you know, the dream is launch a company, grow it, get acquired, move on to the next thing potentially. But, but when you get acquired, kind of all your problems are solved, you know, <laughs> in the sense that, hey, I'm the scrappy startup and now we're going to have resources, we're going to have more people, we're going to have bigger financial backers, we're going to have a bigger platform. And some of that was true, but some of the problems and challenges were the same problems and challenges, just add a zero or two. They just got bigger, a lot bigger overnight with an acquisition. So that was something that was kind of an aha that that I... I don't know why I thought it would be just all all rainbows and roses, you know, when you get acquired. So that that was a learning. But at the same time, it 
let me continue to do a lot of what I liked about my job without some of the daily stresses. So when I was the CEO of HitFix, I, I really did feel like the weight of the world was on my shoulders. I felt very responsible for every employee, every client, every partner. And I took it to heart in a more personal way than you would working for anyone else ever, you know. And so getting acquired just overnight kind of took that responsibility off my shoulders, which let me really enjoy parts of the job that I enjoyed. And that was very distinct. Um, within a few months of getting acquired, I realized, wow, you know, there's this web standing up straight. There's this weight off my shoulders, which was nice. Now, the fate of digital, I don't know what you would call uprocks, but I guess I would think of it as a digital publisher or digital media company. Yeah. And obviously, a number of those businesses have been kind of challenged recently, right? Some going out of business, some restructuring, layoffs, et cetera. What do you think that is? And, and what does that landscape look like currently? Yeah. And I would say it's not just recently. I think over the past three or four years, digital publishers have really been stretched. And there are a number of factors at play. I would say one of them is that a lot of digital publishers rely solely on advertising to make their money. And it's always hard when you have one revenue source instead of multiple revenue sources. So digital publishers have historically been bad about diversifying the revenue sources. And advertising is tough. Advertising is fickle. It's not recurring revenue. You have to start every month over, you know, at zero. Um, and sometimes you have year-long deals, but it's still very much a constant grind. And there have been some advances and changes in advertising that have also affected digital media. So programmatic is one example where display ad units and certain types of ad units have just been commoditized and they've been kind of overlaid with data in a way that sounds good, but what's really happened is it's kind of a race to the bottom in terms of CPMs going down and, and those margins going down for publishers. On the flip side, there's custom opportunities, which a lot of publishers have leaned into, and custom sounds great and it commands bigger price tags and a lot of times larger CPMs, but it's a lot of work and lower margins. So you're kind of getting squeezed at both ends as a publisher. And then scale is getting rewarded tremendously in the market uh, for digital publishers, which is tough because either you're small and niche and specialized or you're huge and everybody in between is just getting squeezed. So, so that part is hard. The other thing that's happening in digital publishing is a real push into video. But when you look at the unit economics around making a video series, it's, it's so expensive compared to how you would monetize that video series just through advertising. And so on a video by video or series by series basis, you're just not able to make a profit. And so if you're not making a profit at that level, where does the profit come in? You know, And it, it's getting challenging to just cover the cost of content with advertising. So you see a lot of publishers diversifying into subscription businesses, into events into merchandising into just kind of a flywheel of different options to kind of give themselves the opportunity to really squeeze every dollar out of IP that they develop and the audience that they've acquired. I'm curious too about the distribution, right? It seems like the hegemony of YouTube and Facebook and Amazon has kind of come to control where audiences spend their time and thus right. the majority of advertising opportunities, right? And so a lot of these publishers are distributing content on social, relying on that to drive uh, viewership and right. either monetizing at really poor rates on those platforms natively or trying to push people off to their O&O destinations. Uh, yes. And it's challenging, right? I mean, we've seen 
uh, traditional publishers, the Hearst and the Condé Nast of the world, try and make the, the transition to digital and particularly the transition to video. We've seen new media iterations of this like Defy, right, recently filed for bankruptcy and struggled to make the model work. What does the future of the digital publisher model look like? How do you find success there? Well, certain types of digital publishers like Wondery and, and what's happening in the podcast space are more set up for success. For traditional publishers, I think they're going to have to go back to the basics of how do I make money? What am I good at? Where's the money really coming from? And having a willingness to really look at, at their cost structure and, and different models. You pointed something out that is really a, a major factor in the industry, which is there are just a few brands and companies controlling the audience spigot, so to speak. And then those same companies are coming in as 800-pound gorillas on the advertising side. So they're they're controlling both sides of it, and they're setting the market dynamics. And so I think publishers are going to either need a real focus in particular niches or be able to really create content that people are willing to pay for because the in-between is, is is just really, really tough. So let's talk a bit about Wondery and let's talk about the podcasting space because historically it has commanded very high CPMs, right? Yes. And there, I'm sure it's beset with its own set of challenges, but from a monetization standpoint on a per unit basis seems to perform better than a lot of other kind of digital media formats. So you joined Wondery as COO about six months ago, still pretty fresh. Uh, how's that transition been and what do you think of the current podcasting ecosystem? The, uh, the transition's been great. I'm really encouraged and excited about the, the podcasting ecosystem. Part of it is that it's new, it, it's Greenfield. It, it, podcasts, yes, have been around for 10, 12 years, but they've really gained traction over these past few years as more platforms like Apple have launched native apps and more and more players have gotten into the space. The, the ecosystem is, is really developing now, which is fun. I mean, back to some of the challenges that I mentioned in digital media and the unit economics, the unit economics work in podcasting. So the cost of making a podcast episode and series is a fraction of video. But as a result, and the high CPMs, and, and, and even the modest CPMs in podcasting, it covers the cost of the podcast outright. So that that is great. And then if you have a hit podcast, you're making good profits. And then if you develop a hit, then you've developed IP and you've cultivated an audience. And sometimes those audiences are bigger than the audiences you see in television right now. So then that lets you have a base to take that IP to other platforms and turn it into a book or a TV show or a film or a live event. And all of a sudden, you know, you've got, you've got economics working at each stage, but you have multiple windows to make that, that money. And so that's really exciting. What's also exciting is just consumer adoption of this and the fact that it's so perfect as content to experience while you're doing something else. So we see consumers who are commuting to work, stuck in LA traffic, you know, listening to, to podcasts quite a bit, or they're riding the subway in New York, they're exercising, they're going to the gym, they're on a plane, all of these use, use cases where there's really no other medium or, or platform that they could be interfacing with while they're driving. You know, they're not going to watch a video while they're driving Hopefully or not. <laughs> watch a video while they're jogging, mm -hmm. but they can have this very intimate personal listening experience with podcasts. And so that is, that is unique. And just the relationship consumers have with the individual podcasts that they listen to and the hosts of those podcasts 
it's I mean, it's obvious that the podcasts are right in their ear, but there, there's something about that connection where people feel like they know the host after they've listened to a podcast several times and they feel invested in the story in a way that sometimes video and, and written content doesn't draw them in in the same way. So were you a big podcast enthusiast pre-Wondery? How did you find out about the company and what made you decide to get involved? I, I was. I, I had been getting into podcasts for a while. In fact, we had done podcasts at HitFix back in the day and I didn't even have the context to know how successful we were with our podcast because we just did a few one-off podcasts. But I've always been a fan of podcasts, and especially as my commute grew over the years, I started listening to more and more podcasts just to pass the time in the car. I got to Wondery because I you know, was coming up on my two years at Uprox, and I knew I was ready for the next challenge. I actually wasn't sure I wanted to stay in digital media, given all the challenges that I had witnessed and I knew were kind of unfolding. But when I, I met our CEO, Hernan, um, and got to see what Wondery was up to, and unbeknownst to me, actually listened to a lot of Wondery podcasts, I thought, gosh, you know, they're onto something. Like, this is really smart. This is exactly how I would have set up this company if, if it were me. I thought, you know, just the company was really off to a good start, had claimed a really impressive place in the podcast ecosystem. And I thought I could bring all my learnings, you know, to the table here and, and hopefully help the company continue to grow. So, gosh, I, I it was earlier this year that I got in touch with Wondery and then kind of all came together by this summer. So you mentioned prior to coming aboard, they had already managed to claim kind of a, a, a important piece of the market, which seems to be a bit increasingly competitive, right? How do you yeah. view the competitive landscape for podcasts today? Oh, gosh. I mean, it's changing all the time. So but by the time I was talking to Wondery, they had all already had a very big hit podcast in Dirty John, um, which was in partnership with the LA Times. And that that podcast has since become a, a TV show and a, and a book. And and um, that one was definitely a calling card for Wondery. But right on the heels of that, they had launched Business Wars and American History Tellers and, you know, a number of other really successful shows in different verticals. And so I would say that 2017, there were a lot of players, but not like the past six months. This fall, it really since I've joined Wondery, I think there are over 500 different series on Apple Podcasts in the U.S., um, and that's just a fraction of the podcasts out there. Every day, we're getting pitched more and more ideas and more podcasts um, to come onto the Wondery platform, and I've just been amazed by the increase in volume since I started, even in July. I think success begets success, and, and people are starting to see that this is a medium that's here to stay, that's claiming more share, and... It just makes sense for a lot of talent and a lot of stories to be kind of, you know, told over told over podcasts. So, yeah, I think I think it's uh, probably going to continue to be competitive. And as the whole space grows, we're seeing more advertising dollars flow into the, the space as well. So that's intriguing for more and more companies and talent to try out the medium. I'm curious about the international opportunity. Do you localize any of your shows? Do you notice a lot of uh, foreign viewership of the content? We we do see a lot of foreign listenership of the content. We are really intrigued at how many of our shows in English travel well to non-English speaking markets. And that's been encouraging. And as we look into 2019, expanding our international footprint, potentially adapting shows is definitely something we're exploring because 
the podcast market outside of the U.S. is enormous. I mean, even in markets like China, it's the podcast market in China is larger than the whole U.S. population. So it it it, it presents a really exciting opportunity. It's just how do we you know approach it with our our wondering brand and our wondering sound in a way that is meaningful. What do you think was the tipping point for podcasts, right? As you mentioned, they've been around for over a decade, but yeah. all of a sudden there's been this huge groundswell in mean, the past two, three, four years. Yeah. What was the kind of watershed moment that led to that? Uh, a few things. So the podcast serial, which a lot of us are familiar with, was just this amazing breakout success, which happened about four years ago. On the heels of that, Apple um, started pre-installing their native podcast app in iOS devices. And they were one of the first platforms to make it so readily available. And as a result, Apple has a huge market share today. Following that, you see more platforms really leaning into podcasting. Spotify has become a big player. This summer, Google launched a native podcast player. And we're seeing more and more folks in the audio space turn to podcasts. So Pandora just launched a podcast platform this month. And I think going into next year, we're going to see a, a few more players emerge in terms of making this easy, easy and, and, and more accessible. How does podcasting differ from the traditional format, right, from talk radio? Well, it's similar to talk radio in certain cases, but the way we approach it is that we, we really try to go for an immersive experience and we think about the listener and their audio experience first. So everything that we program and develop is really through the lens of a podcast. And so we don't try to videotape things and then strip out the audio. We think about how we tell a story and what's going to resonate for someone who's just hearing it and not getting visual cues. And that sounds obvious, but on video, you can have many different characters, like a Game of Thrones, and people can keep them straight because they have visual and audio cues. Um, when you only have an audio cue, there's only so many different voices and people that can be talking and not have it be confusing. So we think about that. We think about the sound design and effects quite a bit because that can really add to the story. Uh, we think about the length of the storytelling and and just, you know, the use case of how people are going to be, you know, receiving this content and, and whether it's something they'll want to listen to when they're commuting or exercising or, or whatever, you know. So I think in every medium, when the creators think about programming just for that medium, you get better content than when you have an idea and you try to say, oh, let me get this out in every single type of medium. Then, then it gets diluted and it's not as powerful a lot of times. And when it comes to taking a piece of IP that you've developed and imagining a life for that beyond the podcast, yeah. uh, what is the strategy? Is that something that you do internally? Are you partnering for some of the other elements like uh, film and TV events? How do you think about taking that beyond just the initial work? You know, I think initially we were just trying to have successful podcasts with the idea that maybe they could turn into something else. Now that we've had a number of successes under our belt, turning podcast IP into TV shows or other, other formats, we've started to turn our attention to, okay, when we greenlight a concept or when we think about it, is this a slam dunk for advertising or does this really have a life beyond? And I think we're getting better at identifying those types of opportunities, but that's a hit-driven part of the business and it's hard to exactly predict. But certainly when we get a few weeks into a launch and we're seeing great success, then we usually know, okay, you know, 
this is going that direction. Although some of our series have now gotten picked up prior to launch. So uh, what do we know? Amazing. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's yeah, a good problem yeah. to have. Yeah. So. What are some of the key lessons that you learned during your time at Uproxx and HitFix that you're now applying here at Wondery? Oh, uh, there, there are a lot of them. I think having lived through a recession and being an entrepreneur in a recession, I'm, I'm not risk averse, but I, I'm paying attention to the business's risks and risk management in a different way than I, I would have having not had those experiences. So when I'm talking to our CEO or just talking generally, you know, big picture, I'm the one talking a lot about diversification and key dependencies and that kind of things across all of the parts of our business because I just think it's so important and I've seen other companies get burned. I think that I have just gotten a lot more experience managing people and managing boards and dealing with all different types of constituencies that sometimes you don't get access to when you're employed by a company versus the one running the company. So I, I think I've gotten a little more savvy in those situations and, and, and just have you know more experiences under my belt to deal with those. And then, gosh, um, in terms of growing the business, there's just certain growing pains that you can't avoid no matter what the business is. And there's not a, a turnkey answer for everything, but having lived through it a few times now, I think I'm a little better at anticipating what we might need in three months, six months, nine months, and, and trying to help surface those things and bring them to the table before it becomes an issue. Yeah. It's yeah. never as scary the second or third or fourth time around. Right. That's right. <laughs> Once you live through it. Yes. Yeah. You can yes. tackle anything. Good. Yes. Let's zoom out a little bit and think about kind of the broader landscape, right? We're at the end of 2018, taking stock of the year. Thinking ahead to 2019, do you have any predictions for the digital media space at large or maybe podcasting more specifically? I've been very laser focused on podcasting. So my predictions are that the space is going to continue to expand. I think that there are some device and platform changes that are going to make podcasts even more accessible. Things like smart speakers that are now, by the end of this year, I think going to be owned by 50% of American households, which gives another point of contact for podcasts to reach the listeners at, at really any age. Um, and so I think we're going to see the 70 to 80 million you know, people who apparently listen to podcasts in the U.S. now grow to a much larger number, which will help podcasts kind of reach that tipping point where 50% of Americans are, are listening. And that will bring in more dollars and more interest. And, and I think, you know, change the landscape quite a bit. We're almost there, but we're not quite there. Yeah, voice is really changing the whole operating system, right? The way that we interact with our devices, the types of content we choose to consume, how we consume it. Uh, it's interesting to see the shift that's going to take place as a result. Yeah. What's coming next for Wondery? What does the future hold? Hopefully good things. Um, a lot of hard work, I think, as well. We're coming off the heels of a really exciting fall, and we're hoping to replicate some of that success next year. Uh, we're hoping to grow our network of both external partners as well as original shows. We're looking to get into new genres that we haven't really tackled yet. International, which we talked about before, is of high, high interest. And continuing to grow our our revenue streams, including you know the advertiser base. So. The expansion of new genres is interesting. Where do you see the white space in podcasting today, either among certain audiences or certain categories? What are you thinking about? Yeah, there's definitely 
white space and audiences. Although Wondery has really tried to tackle some of those head on. So the podcasting landscape overall skews male. Wondery is closer to 50-50 and we have a slight male, uh, female skew, which is unusual. And that's partly due to the types of shows we have, but partly due to the fact that about 50% of our hosts are female. And uh, a lot of times the hosts help, you know, draw in the audience. There is a gap in terms of content about and reaching minorities. And so that's a real opportunity. There are definitely gaps in particular genres, but we're not quite thinking about that so much as what can we do well? What, where are there opportunities for formats or storytelling that work with the Wondery brand and the Wondery sound and that are immersive that either have a path to TV or can be monetized through advertising? So there's a lot of different factors, but I, I, I mean, I, I think the through line is can we do it well? Can we make it better than others. And if we can, then we're going to do it. If we can't, then, you know, we, we don't touch it, even if it's a popular category. It makes sense. Yeah. You got to spend that time in your sweet spot and yeah. emphasize what you can do the Absolutely. best. Yeah. Two questions that I love to ask entrepreneurs who come on the show. One is, uh, I, I think that you have to be a bit of a contrarian sometimes when you're an entrepreneur. So what is something that you believe strongly that you might think other, or that other people might think is totally crazy? Oh, gosh. I'll give you an example from my field while, okay. you, while you have some time to think. Yeah. So we do a lot of work in influencer marketing, right? In a few years now, I've felt pretty strongly that micro-influencers aren't actually very successful for brands. And there's so much of a focus on, on scale, right? On reach and impressions and some of these yeah. vanity metrics. But we see a lot of maybe performance-focused advertisers or others reluctant to jump into influencer marketing because at the end of the day, how do you measure it? Does it really move the needle? And I think that we've seen successful activations top to your influencers, even mid-sized influencers who have a good command of their audience and strong engagement. But this move towards commoditizing influence through micro-influencers, and now we have nano-influencers, I don't think, and I haven't seen any evidence that that really moves the needle for brands. So I've been saying that for a while, and I feel like a crazy person sometimes because the rest of the industry hasn't been reflecting that. And I think we're finally seeing the pendulum start to swing back the other way. Yeah. So I think my version of that, thinking back to my HitFix days and then my Uprox days and now my Wondery days is I have seen clear patterns of early stage companies going all in on particular platforms. When I was doing HitFix, it was going all in on Google, Google search and search engine optimization. And then it was going all in on YouTube. And then by the time I got to Uprox, it was about going all in on Facebook and Twitter. And at Wondery, it's about going all in on Apple. And I am the anti go all in on a platform. It's dangerous. I can't tell you how many investors, when I was pitching through HitFix and Uprox, would just be like, nope, you guys should be 80% Facebook, you should be 80% Google. And not only have I been burned firsthand doing that, but Going back to the whole diversification and risks, I I just, I don't agree. I just don't agree. And I think for the one unicorn company who gets it right on YouTube or gets it right on Facebook and their timing the is The timing right, is everything. It's yeah. awesome for them. But you hear about them, but you don't hear about the 10,000 companies that failed because they put all of their eggs in one basket. And that's that's probably the most contrarian thing I have, where, where I've, I've gone like head to head with investors. Good. And, 
and, and colleagues about this particular point. And I, I just don't agree. And I might be wrong, but I just do not agree. No, I'm with you. you know? No, I think it's way too risky to bet the farm and build a business in someone's backyard. And mm-hmm. the nature of the work that we both do yeah. necessitates that. But yeah. I think as much as you can, you have to differentiate. And I think we actually need more forces to break up the the strength of some of these kind of monopolistic entities today. We need yeah. alternatives for advertisers. We need alternatives for audiences. And uh, whether that happens through deregulation, whether that happens through consumer action or the business landscape changing, that is good for the economy, right? For the for the the powers that be who are starting businesses in this landscape and seeking to create more opportunities. So I'm with you on that one. The other question I'd love to ask is if you were starting a business in the digital media space today, what would you do? Well, one of the things I like to joke around about, which is just really pertaining to podcasts, is I would I would like someone to create an ad server for podcasts that also has a forecasting and inventory management tool built in because the entire industry is waiting for this and none of us have it (laughs) and we're all looking for a solution and I was shocked at how slow technology has been to get to this part of the digital market given that in other parts of digital publishing and, and digital video there's plenty of options for players for ad servers for forecasting for inventory management for order management, like every single part of the operational flow. You get to podcasting and and there's only a handful of players and not all the pieces in the operational process have a piece of technology around it yet. And it's killing me. So I I just keep encouraging everyone I meet to to create this because we'll... We'll license it if sure. you create it. Yeah, what a huge opportunity. How yeah. is that handled today? I would have thought very that Very manually. Yeah. Very manually. And it's annoying. Uh-huh. And is that something that you just have built or, or handle internally through manual processes? There's no... Wow, that's fascinating. So a tip for entrepreneurs out there who are listening, there's a big opportunity for ad yield management and dynamic ad insertion. and For podcasts specifically. Yeah, ad tech layers for, yeah. ad, for podcasts. That's great. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Jen, where can people find out more about you and more about Wondery? Oh, I, I, I try to remain uh, uh, quiet and hidden on the web, so um, they might have to just come visit me if they, if they want to know more. Uh, no, they can, they can find me on LinkedIn, of course, and Wondery is just Wondery.com, as well as you can find all of our podcasts on, on Apple or Spotify or really wherever, wherever you listen to podcasts. So. Very cool. Well, Jen, thank you so much for sharing your experience and some insights into the podcasting landscape. It's fun to get a bit meta on the show and talk about what's happening in the digital media landscape and being a podcaster for fun and and really out of passion and the idea of sharing these experiences with a more more diverse and wider audience is just fascinating to get a bit of an inside look. So thanks again. Thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.